I really believe that the science of love is what everybody needs to learn more than any other skill that you will ever need in your life. Relationship skills are the absolute most important thing to success. Just like how somebody can learn to exercise and diet and lose weight, in the same way you can learn how to be a good partner and find better partners in your romantic lives. Everybody learns skills to obtain sex, but not necessarily how to attain emotional intimacy, which is the glue for long-term monogamy. Men will have sex with you quickly if you offer it, but they don't fall in love because they think, oh, now she's not wife material. This is ancient evolution at play in a man's brain. But the truth is a man can have sex with the same woman every week for six months and not like her one bit more than he did the first time. The people who are promoting open relationships and polyamory are men and women are buying into it. We have an oversupply of successful women right now vying for a very small group of men at the top, successful men. So as a result, women are using up their fertility window, trying to compete with other women for a very small group of men. One in five women will be denied the opportunity to become mothers because they can't get a guy to come in on time. It's a strategy, ladies. You are not selling. You are buying. They should be selling. You have the eggs they want. to Diary of an Empath. My next guest is Dr. Wendy Walsh. Dr. Walsh is an award-winning television journalist and is a current radio host and podcaster. She is also the author of three books and thousands of print and digital articles, and she was named one of the Time Magazine's Person of the Year in 2017. Dr. Walsh, thank you for coming on the show. I'm super excited to have you. I'm happy to be here. So I was reading a little bit about your story. I would love to know a little bit about your background because you have a very impressive and extensive history in media, but I would love to know a little bit more about your upbringing and how that path led you to where you are now. Well, I'm Canadian and my dad was in the Navy and we moved a lot. And I think I learned to be, I was always the new kid in class. I went to 10 different schools by the time I graduated high school and it made me be able to read a room pretty quickly to read people pretty quickly. But also the word that kept popping up in my head was why? Why do they do it that way? Why do they wear wide leg jeans? Why do they wear sneakers that color? Why do people do that? Why do they talk that way? I just naturally was born to have a curious mind. And so when I went to university for undergrad, my first degree was in journalism. And my plan was to be a writer for the rest of my life until I escaped Canada for warmer weather in California. And everyone told me, you do not have the face for print. You need to be on TV. So I ended up pursuing a television career for, oh God, 20, 30 years. Uh, I was a local news anchor in Los Angeles. I hosted 50 different cable half hour magazine shows. Uh, I was uh, hosted a silly show called Extra, <laughs> uh, an entertainment show. I was part of the cast of The Doctors, the Dr. Phil spinoff, and eventually you know, got farmed out to radio in the end. But along the way, especially when I was um, in my 30s and having babies, I became very concerned about the brain that was developing in my womb and the brain that eventually I would help nurture and grow outside of my womb. So I started taking psychology classes for fun. And once I got hooked on to evolutionary psychology and attachment theory and learned about the roots of adult romantic attachment, I was hooked. This was the area I really believed that the science of love is what everybody needs to learn more than any other skill that you will ever need in your life. 
relationship skills are the absolute most important thing to success because we are here to reproduce and our meaning in life. Nobody lies on their deathbed saying, I wish I'd worked more. They, our meaning to life is connections with others. And for many people, they did not grow up in a family that um, had a secure attachment style uh, or maybe there was trauma involved. And so it's something they need to learn. But just like how somebody can learn to exercise and diet and lose weight, in the same way you can learn how to be a good partner and find better partners in your romantic lives. I love that. Your path really took a turn, but led you to where you're at now. I was in the Marine Corps, by the way. So we have oh. a couple of, yeah, we have a couple yeah. things in common. And then I moved to Florida for sunnier weather and I had no idea that my path would lead me to what I'm doing now. It's just, it's funny how that works. I, so you mentioned attachment style. So let's jump into relationships because this is one of my favorite topics and I would love to start from the beginning. So when we're children, you mentioned that this can shape how we are as adults. So let's talk a little bit about attachment theory. And for those that have never heard of that, what is it and why does it matter? So who we are and how we love is partly genetic predisposition. Some people come into the world needing a certain amount of closeness or touch or love, and other people are a little more independent. But those genes meet the environment. And the environment for a baby is its first relationships with its first caregivers. And so if a caregiver is attentive to the child who is able to meet their needs. They grow up to trust relationships, trust love, trust people, trust the world. If, however, they're lying in a bed crying with a wet diaper, hungry, and the parent has read a book that says it's good for their lungs to cry it out, that's called sleep training, that's important, then maybe the baby, if they happen to have genes for anxiety, will grow up with fear and mistrust around relationships. Some will check out completely and be avoidant. Now, what's interesting is they get into the adult mating marketplace and everybody learns skills to obtain sex, but not necessarily how to attain emotional intimacy, which is the glue for long-term monogamy. And that ends up becoming our attachment style. And it's quite a continuum. Some people have more anxiety around relationships. Some people are more avoidant. Some people are more secure. Some people are disorganized. But we will go out into our adult world and we will find people that remind us of our familiar feeling of love, even if that familiar feeling of love is filled, is filled with pain or longing. So you mentioned anxious attachment style. And I think we hear that a lot. So I would love to hear examples of what that would look like in a relationship. And on the other flip of the coin, I would love to hear how or what an avoidant would look like in a relationship. Maybe some examples. Oh, I can tell you about lots of avoidance because I dated them all. Um, <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I, I, I recovered from my own, what I would self-diagnose as anxious, ambivalent attachment style Me too. through group therapy. And um, obviously going to grad school to get a master's and PhD in this to like think it through and figure out my piece in it. But somebody who has an anxious style is a clock watcher. So you picture uh, a, a damaged baby in the bed who's waiting for mom to come and they're screaming, they're unhappy. They go out into their adult lives. And if the person is not responsive right away to a text or they don't call on time, um, they feel deregulated. They don't know if mommy's coming because, you know, Every relationship is secretly, I'll be your mommy if you be my daddy, okay? Uh, we are in our most infantile state in our most in intimate relationships. And so the clock watcher gets very angry if this person isn't meeting their needs. 
And so ironically, it's a weird cycle because they also push people away with their anger. It's really hard to hug somebody who's prickly, right? Now, on top of it, the anxious person is most often attracted to the avoidant person. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. The person who is not reciprocal in when they call, who's not um, giving them the love and attention they need. Now, it's a scale. There might be an anxious person who's so anxious that there's no other person who could ever fill that void. In other words, they need to go and heal themselves so they can calm down their own anxiety. At their end, other end of the scale, there's an avoidant person. Now, an avoidant person isn't deliberately trying to hurt and attach someone with an anxious attachment. They just don't like closeness. It feels uncomfortable to them. So they move away from closeness and that triggers the anxious person and then becomes the cycle. Now, interesting enough, if let's say the anxious person were to meet somebody with a secure attachment style, that kindness, that attentiveness, that empathy feels weird because they're used to the chase and the longing. So they actually sometimes will become drama queens or kings and force that person away. Uh, and so it's, it's just this cycle that you have to start to watch. For me, I like, used to like to say that I had to learn how to tolerate kindness. It's interesting, right? How to tolerate kindness and learn that it was something that is welcomed in my life. I'm now in a very secure relationship with somebody who has a secure attachment style and it's a great place to be. And it feels nothing like love felt like when I had an anxious attachment style. When I had an anxious attachment style, love felt like crazy butterflies in my stomach that were more like a hornet's nest. That's called anxiety. It's not love. Love felt like a roller coaster with amazing highs. Oh my God, he called. We're getting together. This is amazing. And then amazing lows. Oh my God, where is he? What happened? Now that I'm in a secure relationship, I have none of those feelings. Do you know what it's replaced by? Peace, safety, trust. I just know he's always going to be there. It's amazing. And that's a beautiful place to be. Like you, I was definitely more of an anxious attacher. And I still say that even though I'm more secure now, I still have anxious tendencies. And I feel like those tendencies may always be there, but I recognize them. And I know when to put them to the side. I know when to check myself like, okay, is this your nervous system acting up? Is this a trigger that's acting up? Or is this something that's really happening? And now, you know, and I've said this often on my podcast, if I feel the need, because I'm still single. And so if I'm dating somebody, and I feel the need to write out a paragraph, I might write it out. I just don't send it. And I right. give myself some time to read it over, to think about it. And nine times out of 10, I end up not needing to say that or say a lot less <laughs> than what I used to. Flare-ups are common. And the difference is not that you make your anxiety go away. It's that you know how to manage it now, right? That's the difference. Uh, I, I think I posted a TikTok video one time about how even I had a flare-up. One night I was finishing up the dishes and I walked into the bedroom and the patio door to my bedroom was wide open and my boyfriend was gone. Like he didn't say, Hey, I'm going out or he didn't say anything. And I immediately ran to the little drawer he keeps at my place that has his socks and underwear and toothbrush and whatever to see if his stuff was there at my age in our secure relationship. So I checked the stuff was there and then I turn around and there he's standing in the bedroom and I go, where'd you go? Like again, where'd you go? And he said, uh, I went to the garage to plug in your car so you'd have enough miles to model. Like he was being thoughtful and doing something nice for me, but my brain didn't go there. Like he has to have disappeared in some way. So I laughed about it. I said, I thought you 
abandoned me. And I checked your drawer to see if your stuff was still there. And he laughed so hard. He thought that was hysterical. Well, I, I love that for you. I love that you're now in a secure relationship. I think that all of us strive to be there. And it's just, it just is a testament that even if you have these attachment styles, you can strive for secure and even make those steps to be secure. One question I actually have, and I don't know how true this is, but it's one thing that I've observed that sometimes avoidance can or some people can think that avoidance are actually a narcissist when I don't always think that's the case. I think the, the term narcissist is kind of thrown out very loosely nowadays, but I think that avoidant tendency can sometimes be confused. I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think narcissistic personality disorder is something like 0.01% of the population. I don't know, I'm making up that number, but it's very low. Um, and yet if you go on TikTok, it's 90% of the boyfriends, right? Yes. <laughs> Everybody's <laughs> calling everybody a narcissist right now. Um, right. But I think that people who have an avoidant attachment style don't necessarily have a personality disorder. They just feel safer not being too close to somebody. And the important thing for the person who has the anxious attachment style is to know that it's not about you. You know, and there's also nothing you can do to reel them in. No amount of little notes sent on cute cards, no amount of, you know, working out in Pilates and making your butt look great is going to like reel them in. They have their own attachment style. And if you want to be with them, you have to learn to accept it and work around it and get your attachment needs maybe met with other close friends and family members. I agree. And there's a great book for those of the, that are listening called Attached. I highly recommend it. When you start learning your attachment style, it really does help change the way you view relationships. A, a post you recently made on your Instagram, which I thought was really interesting, you said, men don't fall in love through sex. I would love to hear your thoughts on this. I want to preface what I'm about to say by reminding everybody that while we have a diversity in gender expression, a diversity in gender role. Gender is not completely a cultural construct. There are some biological pieces that go way back in our evolution. And so the typical human, now again, this isn't meaning that atypical people are not lovable and normal, but this, what I'm about to say may not apply to them. The typical heterosexual male will obtain sex if it's there because we're men are wired to want more sex and, and are less um, discerning and when they do choose a sexual partner. However, because in our anthropological past, men took a big risk if they hooked up with a woman who was promiscuous because if she was sharing her eggs with the whole team, he risked raising another man's genes. And so as a result, they're wary of women who get around. So here's the interesting thing is that men will have sex with you quickly if you offer it, but they don't fall in love because they think, oh, now she's not wife material. And again, this isn't patriarchy. This is ancient uh, evolution at play in a man's brain. Now, a man can have sex. The women, many women in modern society erroneously think that if they hook up with a guy and they're not pressuring him for anything, they're just the nice girl. And they want to show him that they're just a nice, kind person and they can attend to him sexually, that eventually he's just going to turn around and go, wow, I want to marry you. But the truth is a man can have sex with the same woman 
every week for six months and not like her one bit more than he did the first time. Women, on the other hand, and this is what we're projecting onto him, if they continue to have sex with the same man, they'll fall in love whether they want to or not because their bodies emit so much uh, bonding hormone, specifically oxytocin. And the only other time in a woman's life where she emits that much oxytocin as sex is when she's breastfeeding her baby to create that bond. And so women will often say to me, this was supposed to be just sports sex or a hookup. Why am I mad that he hasn't called me back? I'm like, your body's attaching, right? Even if you're not. And you have to be careful, ladies, because you might end up falling in love with a loser that way because you haven't done your assessment period beforehand. And then your body falls in love. So yeah, men don't, no, more, giving a man more sex is not going to make him love you more. Guaranteed. Side note, did you guys know that I'm not only a therapist, but I'm also a professional tarot reader? It's not exactly me hovering over a crystal ball telling your future. It's a tool to connect with your guides and your higher self to help you in certain areas of your life. Tarot genuinely changed my life and it can potentially change yours too. Click on the link in this podcast for more info. Okay, back to the podcast. That's right. That's right. We, our bodies literally at a DNA level release these hormones. And I always say too, like, you got to get to know yourself. I was one of those girls. Like I have to know myself and I know if I start having sex with somebody, I will become attached much quicker. And I start to not think as logical. This is typical for most women. And it's also typical for most women to want monogamy. Monogamy is natural for our species. It has been evolving and spreading around the the planet globally. Uh, We all need to work together to normalize monogamy. The people who are promoting uh, open relationships and polyamory are men. And women are buying into it. But most women, the typical woman does not want that. So do you think that monogamy still exists in our current generation? Yes. Now, humans have always had a system of social monogamy or sometimes perceived monogamy, meaning that their primary social relationship, their uh, boyfriend, girlfriend, fiance, husband, wife, um, is the one that socially uh, uh, is part of the, the bigger social structure. But that doesn't mean that people don't have affairs sometimes, that people might practice serial monogamy, right? They might have a relationship for a few years. In fact, because of our now very long life expectancies, even the most monogamous of humans may expect to see two or three long stints of monogamy with some mate selection in between. So yes, it exists. Human beings have two separate mating systems. One is spread your seed and the other is focus on one relationship and one set of offspring that come. And a good 50% of humans do that. Um, and here's an interesting thing, if, if men or if you have any men listening. So if the purpose, if one of the main purposes of sex from an evolutionary standpoint is reproduction, we know that sex has lots of other purposes too, but let's just say reproduction is the primary purpose. If a man chooses to invest in one woman with monogamy, marry her or not, but be with her, live with her, the highest amount of babies that he can make in one calendar year is one a year is basically he can do. So there are men that think, well, I'm just going to be a player instead. And even if they don't want to produce a baby, by the way, this is all unconscious, right? I am going to, uh, you know, put my sperm in as many women as I can in a calendar year. So if a man chooses to do that, how many women do you think he has to hook up with to match the reproductive success of the monogamous man 
So in the span of one year, how many women does the player have to convince to have sex with him to make sure that one gets pregnant? I'll remind you that women only ovulate for three days a month. So any woman that he's with, he has, there's a chance that 27 days of the month, he's shooting blanks. She is not going to get pregnant. So now do that math. How many women does he actually have to get in their ovulation window in order to ensure that one will become pregnant like the monogamous man can do? And the answer is 33. So we save those numbers for Super Bowl ring wearers, for Academy Award holders, for the top of the top celebrated alpha good-looking males. They can get 33 women in a year. Average dude out there cannot get 33 women in one year. And so his best bet to keep his genes in evolution's chain is to invest in one woman and one set of offspring. I think of Nick Cannon when right. I'm thinking of this. I should also add that this doesn't assure the, that the player's offspring will grow up to be good parents themselves and the genes will continue because leaving your genes with a single mother is a crapshoot. The stress is on single parents, right? That's a very interesting, and I mean, really mathematical, and it makes sense. It really does, like from a biological standpoint. This is why we have monogamy. Right, right. I mean, I'm a monogamous person. I just question if monogamy still exists in men. I hope that it does, and I'm still hopeful, but it feels harder and harder. <laughs> it is feeling harder, and I'll tell you why. We have an oversupply of successful women right now, mm-hmm. vying for a very small group of men at the top, successful men. Women, when they get college educated, and now for every two men that graduate college, there are three women, and this has been going on for two decades. Women do not like to marry men without college degrees if they have a college degree. So as a result, women are using up their fertility window, trying to compete with other women for a very small group of men. Now, here's what happens to all the men who are being squeezed out of the mating marketplace. And just yesterday, I interviewed for my podcast, uh, Dr. Joe Henrich, who is chair of the evolutionary biology department at Harvard. And he's the one who told me this, that... The men who are being squeezed out of the marriage market, what does mother nature do to them to help them find a mate? Raises their testosterone, makes them more hypersexual, makes them more aggressive, actually raises crime rates. Monogamy is good for humans because it's good for cultures and societies. The more monogamy you have, the lower the crime rate. Here's why. When you have one group of men at the top, you know whether you call it a harem or whether you just say it's an athlete with a lot of baby mamas, Uh, one group of men at the top who has more women, that leaves a group of men at the bottom, often in the lower classes, who are angry, they can't find mates, and so crime rates go up, and rape goes up, sexual assault goes up. And so women, by not choosing to marry men without college degrees, are creating higher crime rates, accidentally. They are creating... uh, you know, this uh, unstable, unsafe society, they are often losing the opportunity to reproduce themselves. One in five women will be denied the opportunity to become mothers if they want to, because they can't get a guy to commit on time. So the big message here is women, stop it. Get patriarchy out of your own head. You don't have to be, have a prince charming that makes more money and is taller and everything else for you. There could be a really great guy, and your idea of a power guy should be a guy who can power a stroller. 
because we're in the information age and women are the CEOs of their household now. So why can't you be a good husband and treat your mate well? That was powerful. So as an alpha woman, I struggle too, because what, what is your advice to alpha women that are out there? Because I think that for, for example, for me, I consider myself a successful woman. I have created my own life, but I do want a man who can be a little bit more alpha as well. And I have a really hard time finding that. I find that a lot of the men that I meet are, I, I borderline want to say intimidated in many ways. And that can oh, sometimes yeah, be a turnoff. Yeah. So what does an alpha woman do then in, in a dating situation? Because I think it's hard for us. Okay. First of all, I hate the term alpha anything. There's no such thing as an alpha woman or an alpha man. What you are is an educated woman who is self-confident and financially independent. Okay. But that doesn't mean you're not a woman. What do women want more than anything from a man? They want protection. They want to feel safe. And in the olden days, protection meant financial security from a man. Well, if you already have your financial security, ask yourself, maybe protection might mean emotional trust, safe, emotional safety, right? So you've got to get your head out of the space that these guys are less than. Because if you say they're intimidated, it's because you're intimidating them. So what can you do? If you want, to, if you want a king, better learn how to be a good queen. Uh, which means what can you do to help gas them up instead of compete with them? I see a lot of women out there competing with men. And I know that people get mad at me. And I'm just saying, look, it's human beings. You know, I try as hard as I can to make my boyfriend feel special because he does that for me, right? He, you know, I, he does wonderful things for me. I do wonderful things for him. And so what women do is they get out on this dating table and they start like competing with the guy and laying out their cards of all their success. You know, keep your cards close. Just laugh at his jokes, make him, make him feel great and watch how you can transform him from somebody who's intimidated to somebody who will, you know, lead in the way that you're looking for. But if you have patriarchy in your head and you're looking for a guy who has more education, makes more money, is more of an extrovert and is the social runner of the thing, not going to happen. There are four of those guys for every 400 women. So mm. basic stats, right? Mm-hmm. That, that's a hard one to swallow. So I always yeah. like to, I always like to ask people this, especially cause you're on social media. I'm on social media. Do you feel like social media is playing a role or changing how we view dating and relationships? Well, I think technology in particular is messing with our brains and here's how. So, um, in our anthropological past during our entire lifetime, we probably never laid eyes on more than about 150 humans. And how many of those were potential mates who did not carry our genes? Because mostly they were a related family. Uh, not so many, right? Now you can go on a dating app or on Instagram or TikTok and find in your mind potential new mates, thousands every day, right? So it's creating something called paradox of choice. Psychologists have always known that when a human is presented with too much choice, they have trouble making a choice. And when they do make a choice, they don't value that choice very much because they're thinking about the bigger, better deal. So people are putting less effort into their relationships because anytime it gets a little bit rocky, they jump right back to those apps. So that is a problem. And here's where I think 
women need to remember that they are in charge and in control. Women are 100% in control of the sexual pace of a new relationship. All men know this, right? You are in charge. So what about seeing a guy for a few weeks and then saying, hey, before we have sex, I would like us to both go off the dating apps or I would like to shut down our social or whatever. I'm not asking you to be my boyfriend publicly or post anything. I'm just saying that while we're having sex and we're assessing each other, I'd like sexual exclusivity. Nothing wrong with that. You're exposing your eggs, your bloodstream, and your heart to a stranger, a guy who you probably wouldn't give the keys to your apartment to to water your plants while you're out of town, and yet you would give them the most precious thing you own, your body. Yeah, and you know, I think we give people too much control. And I think a lot of people, a lot of women in particular, and this is myself included in the past. A lot of women, I feel, are afraid to state their needs. Yeah. They're afraid because they're worried about female competition. You know, I remember a guy said to me once back in the day, and this has been around since the history of the species, guys. He said, well, you know, if I don't get it from you, I'm going to get it from somebody else. I made a TikTok video about this. And I said, and my answer was, I don't think you can get sex with me from somebody else. Right? So you know your worth. Know your value. No is the world's biggest aphrodisiac. Remember, he's wired to put women in one of two categories, hookup or wife. So behave like his wife. And behaving like his wife is not about being that nice girl who doesn't cause him any problems, who just hooks up with him and just never acts like the crazy girl. No. The wife material says, here are my standards. Here are my boundaries. If this isn't okay with you, move along. There's somebody who will take this deal. And there are women negotiating. Look, the wedding business has exploded in the last few years. Exploded. Because smart women are negotiating commitment and they know how to negotiate it from the beginning. It's a strategy, ladies. And as long as you are mesmerized by this idea that it's a soulmate or it's Cupid and his bow, no. It's you and your strategy and put on your thinking brain. I love that. I think it's communication is key. And, and if you want something or if that's your boundary, I'm really, I'm an advocate for high standards. I think a lot of people don't, a lot of women, a lot of even some men don't know when to walk away when someone is not meeting those standards or when there's it's incompatibility. All elimination. It's all, dating is a process of elimination. You're only finding one. But that one person is a needle in a haystack. So it means you have to pick up every piece of straw and throw it away. And now that you're presented with thousands of choices on apps, it's an endurance test. But you should think in your mind that the quicker I can eliminate him, the better till I get to the right one. So start right on the apps. If he's not texting back right away, if he's not putting enough words, swipe him away. Move on. Like you set criteria from the beginning and just eliminate, eliminate, eliminate. So if you're dating somebody or you're in a relationship and you're seeing that it's not working out, and I know this is like a common sense question for some of us, but some people really have difficulties or challenges with this. How does someone know when you should walk away? When should you walk away from a situation or a relationship? Let's say somebody's dating, you're, I'm, I'm dating a guy and he, 
yes, we're having sex. I really like him. He shows that he likes me. We spend time together, but there's no commitment. And I want a commitment. But he says, I just want to take my time. I don't want to rush okay, things. This is a common thing. They put women in a situationship so that they can continue to keep their options open and date other women. Women need to take control from the very beginning. It should go like this. You meet somebody on an app. Within three or four texts, you give your phone number and say, hey, I'm really not a big texting person, but um, I'll be happy to jump on the phone with you. If they do not call within three days, swipe them away. They're gone. They're not active. You want one person who's absolutely energized and impassioned by you and gets so excited by your phone number. And ladies, if you're worried about safety, block your, ask for his number, block your number when you call, get a Google number. It's so, use tech. It's, you know, it's not like he's going to get your home address now with your phone number. So, so you get rid of him there. If you get on the phone, see if he gives good phone. Spend half an hour. Do not spend two hours in your first phone call and get all caught up in, oh my God, he's perfect. Never, never more yes. than 30 minutes. Always leave him wanting more. Always leave him wanting more. And so you must get off the phone first. Oh, I'm so sorry. I got to go. You jump off. So he's wanting more. So then you think about that phone conversation and you think to yourself, do I need to invest 30 minutes driving across town for a coffee date with this guy? Is there really a chance? And if there is not a chance, you are not a rude person. You do not ghost him. You simply write a text that says, hey, it was lovely chatting with you. Good luck at your cousin's wedding next week. Say something cute and personal. Um, I don't think romance is in the cards for us, but I'll keep you in mind for a friend sometime. And good luck to you. Remember, these people may be living in your zip code. You may run into them at work, at the dry cleaners, whatever. So just be kind person, how you would want to be treated. That's right. And then move along. Now, if you get to the coffee date, never make the coffee date more than 30 minutes. Even if you're having the best time in the world, leave them wanting more, leave them wanting more. Just say, oh, I'm in between two things. I only have about 30 minutes. Let's meet there. The first coffee date or walking date or hiking date, whatever, should not be a date. It's a meeting where you're deciding whether you're going to have a first date with somebody. Okay. So don't get overly dressed. Don't get all really like selling. You are not selling. You are buying. They should be selling. You have the eggs they want. So you just be your natural self. You meet for a quick coffee. And at the end, get back to that text and say, hey, it was lovely to meet you. I don't think romance is in the cards. Get rid of them. Or uh, if you did like the coffee, then you sit on your pretty little manicure and you don't touch your phone and you wait till he calls. And if he doesn't call, move on, move on, move on. Silence is communication, folks. What can I do? He hasn't texted me. What can I do? Nothing. Move along. Turn your head. Look in a different direction. There's more. Then you've now got the first date. You might do two or three dates, I hope, before you have sex. And then you say for that sexual experience, hey, um, I, I'm really attracted to you. And I'm excited to take this one step further. Uh, but while we're just getting to know each other, I'm not asking for a relationship definition here because we don't really know where this is going. Uh, but I'd like to know that if you're sleeping with me, that I'm the only person you're sleeping with. And you ask for sexual exclusivity before you have sex. He will say yes because he wants sex, right? And then, of course, the women say, but then he'll lie and he'll just cheat. Well, you will find out pretty quickly because mm -hmm. the next step is after you have sex for a few weeks and you've decided you want to make him your boyfriend, you're in charge. Remember, you're in charge. You say to him, uh, you have the what are we conversation. Hey, I feel like I'm growing close to you. We're growing emotional intimacy. Uh, we haven't put any definition on this. How do you feel about it, about putting a little name on it? And if he says, no, I don't want to, then you just say, mm, sorry, pussy's closed. 
You're in control. I love that. You're 100% in control. And you have to be prepared to let them go because there are a thousand more behind him. And do not waste your time. I have a t-shirt I have coming out that says, honesty saves everybody time. Just be honest. You have a fertility window that he doesn't have. Work it. Work it. That's amazing advice. And that's so, it's so true on so many levels. We have more control than we think. There was an article that came out recently, and I know that you made a post about it by Greg Matos. I hope I'm saying his name mm-hmm. right. And, the rise of lonely men. Yes, the rise of lonely men. What are your thoughts about this article? And do you think well, it's true? He, yes, because he's highlighting this group of men that women aren't choosing. May, they may not have college educations and they're very angry. So he's actually saying to them, if you want to get that woman, you better um, grow your emotional intelligence because you won't be able to be able to get them on your status, your looks or your money, but she's going to fall for you because you'll be the guy that can power that stroller. And he's absolutely right. Is that at the 11th hour of a woman's fertility window, she's going to pick a good father and she's going to pick a nice guy who has emotional intelligence, who pays attention to her feelings. You, a woman who's choosing a mate at 25 is a very different woman who's choosing a mate at 38. Yes, very true. My 25-year-old self compared to now, my 25-year-old self was in a toxic relationship. My 37-year-old self now is like, no, I want something stable and healthy. And if that means that it feels a little boring because my nervous system isn't being activated, that is actually what I'm looking for. I don't want to feel activated. I'm not looking for the butterflies anymore. Attraction's important, but I don't need... Yeah, I don't need to feel the like, oh my God, because that is actually a cue that this might not be (laughs) the person I think it is. So Mm -hmm. it's so true. Um, So I think that one thing that you said too that really stood out to me is there's no such thing as a gold digger. I would love for you to elaborate on this because I hear that a lot and especially for women who want a man who is more of a provider or want a man that has a certain financial status. Do you feel like that is something that women should go for? Everybody's a gold digger. Mm. And if you're not a gold digger, there's something wrong with you. Mm. In other words, look, in our evolutionary past, as in today, the very vulnerable years of pregnancy, nursing, and raising small children, a woman needed somebody to protect them and bring home the bacon during that time. And so as a result, just as a man is wired to not like a woman who's promiscuous, women are wired to sit up a little straighter when a man with financial ability comes in. If you take two identical twin brothers and one is poor and one is rich, who are you going to date? Right. So I think to lie about it is like, I'm not a gold digger. I'm not after you for my your money. I have my own money is a lie. It's better to say I'm looking for a financial peer. Or if I date you and you're not quite financial, my financial peer, I'd like to see what else you can bring to the table. It's perfectly okay to say that. Right. I like so, that financial peer. Yeah. A financial peer, but you might not have a financial peer. You might date a guy who makes less money than you. Get your head around that fact. But he might be all men in other areas. Mm. I think for me, I'm not looking for like a certain 
checkbox. You don't have to make a certain amount of money. I think for me, what I'm looking for is somebody who can just match some of my lifestyle. Like for example, I love to travel. I want a man who can afford to take a trip to Europe once or twice a year. Those things are important to me. I want a man that is able to go out to dinner or take me out to dinner when we want to go. But it doesn't have to be like, oh, you have to make, you know, 150,000 a year. I just want someone to match my lifestyle. And I think when I got out of that mindset, Europe every year, you better be making at least 150. But uh, let me ask you this. Um, What else do you want in life besides vacations? What are your goals? Uh, Yeah, you know, I want to be happy. I want stability. But travel is important to me too. (laughs) You want to have a family? I, I have a daughter already. So I think I'm, I actually want a man who already has a child or, cause I don't want to have more. Understand parenthood. Yeah. That's really important. Yeah, I think so. And I think of course, those are things that I naturally would look for first. Traveling is something that is just like a check on the box. It's not like a deal breaker, but I think I do want somebody who can match some of that lifestyle. I don't want to take care of anybody, put it that way. <laughs> and I think that's where well, I'm at. But I think we have to analyze what taking care of is. All relationships are an exchange of care, right? That care can be financial. It can be emotional. It can be uh, child care. It can be instrumental care when somebody's sick, domestic responsibility care. There are many things that men can bring the, to the table besides money. And I think that's where our old evolution gets trapped in women's heads. And this idea that if he makes 25% less than you, that you're taking care of him only exists if you do. In other words, if he's not contributing 25% in another way, if he's not a doer, a giver in a million other ways, men are fabulous in the things they can do, that they can fix, that they can attend to. Um, Two brains get so much more done than one. And I think that if you only look at his contribution in financial terms, then you're going to trap yourself and you're not going to find that guy because the female to female competition is too high for that guy right now. And that's just You know what? Being realistic about the mating game board is half the battle. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, when you find somebody, not somebody who has low self-esteem, not somebody who you're financially taking care of and they're not pulling their weight. I can understand those fears. And you do have to eliminate those two when they come along. But there'll be another guy who says, look, you know, I'm a great plumber. I, I, I work for the city and road service. I do this. I'm a but you know, I can fix everything in your house (laughs) and that has value too. I have a lot of, a lot of light bulbs that are out right now. (laughs) I'm at the stage where every girlfriend of mine is remodeling a house and buying more real estate, et cetera. And we're dealing with so many expensive men that we pay to come to do everything, plumbing, electricity, construction, et cetera. And I'm like, we should just marry one of them. Like, honestly, I'm looking really close at contractors now. I'm like, That's amazing. (laughs) Save a lot of money. I'm telling you, I got light bulbs that are out right now. I got fire alarms chirping in the background. Just those little things. (laughs) That labor has financial value. Mm -hmm. And I think too, that a lot of women don't, 
allow men to do things that make them feel like they're contributing. Because I find a lot of girls that I know, even some of my girlfriends, they're like, no, I can do it. Like, no, no, no. Yeah, you can do it, but allow him to do it. Make him feel like he's doing something useful because I think men naturally want to feel that. I wrote a book once called The Girlfriend Test, How Dateable Are You? And I interviewed 100 men and asked them what women do in the early stages of dating to turn them off. And I asked about these independent women and, and almost all the men said, when they're too independent, I say, what does she need me for? You know, you need, we need each other. It's about caring for each other. And in order for them to get to care for you, you have to express your needs. You have to be vulnerable. Being independent and I can do it myself says to him, I don't need you. And what a thing to say to somebody you want to hold your heart. What advice would you give to your younger self? Have more kids and do it earlier. I found motherhood very, very meaningful, and I waited till the end of my fertility window. I had two daughters. They're great. They're age 24 and 19. But I would have had six kids if I knew how meaningful it was. Um, the other advice I would give to myself is um, that I would have gotten rid of all those players faster. I mean, I waste, wasted 10 years of my life on and off. We'd see each other for a couple of years and I'd block him, not talk to him for a while. And then he'd find his way back in, you know, where the guy was an absolute player. And it, he was just an object for me to project my anxious attachment disorder on. And I would have gone into therapy earlier. I would have healed earlier. And I would have had the kind of wonderful, secure relationship that I have right now earlier. I mean, the saddest thing I feel that I fell in love with the love of my life in my fifties is that we have, you know, till death do us part is so much sooner. There's so little time we get to spend with each other compared to if we'd met earlier. Well, first of all, you look fabulous. You don't look like you're in your fifties. <laughs> That's number no, one. I'm, not. I'm past that now. <laughs> You look amazing, but you know, what a, what a blessing though, that you, you did get to experience that because I think there's a lot of people that go through life and they just haven't figured it out. They haven't done the therapy, they haven't done the work or they're just not willing to. Yeah. So you, how amazing that, you know, you did do that. And now we get the blessings of the things that you're passing on for other people to get free help because a lot of people, you know, back, back when I was younger, I didn't have the internet. We didn't have any access to anything. And now I can go on your page and I can see all the wonderful things that you're doing. So speaking of, um, what are you into now? What's going on? Is there any projects that you're working on? I would love for people to be so able to much. find you. Uh, the best place for people to come to have immediate connection with me is onto my Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash Dr. Wendy Walsh. There are lots of tiers of membership as cheap as $4 a month, as high as $49 a month. It involves um, access to me. You can send me messages. I can help you write your dating profile. I'm, I'm there. I'm like your free best friend and auntie who helps you in your relationship life. You can come to Zoom rooms where we have quite a brain trust of fascinating, bright people on my Patreon. Some people take my love science education class, which is literally all about the biopsychosocial pieces of love. And they learn all the strategies from the beginning. And it's a university level course. Um, so Patreon, I would say is the most important place. If you want direct access to me, you can also follow me on my social media everywhere. The handle is at Dr. Wendy Walsh. I post TikTok and Instagram videos almost every day. Um, I have a radio show on iHeartRadio called The Dr. Wendy Walsh Show. So for that, you just download the iHeartRadio app and search The Dr. Wendy Walsh Show. And I'm in the process right now 
of developing a set of micro courses so that people for, who just might have $20 and just have one problem, like dating after divorce or, um, uh, you know, when a guy doesn't call me back, how do I get him to call me back? Like short little micro courses. And I'm going to have hopefully in the next six weeks, about 25 of them up. So they'll be all on my website. My website is at drwendywalsh.com. Oh, no, just drwendywalsh.com. <laughs> That's so exciting. I'm going to link everything for everyone to follow you, to find you, your Patreon. You're doing amazing work. I thank you so much for your time and your energy. And just to be able to connect with you, you're awesome. And you have such an amazing aura about you. And just thank you for continuing to do what you do. Thank you. Nice to meet you. You as well. All right. Until next time, see you on the next episode of Diary of an Empath.